we are on. Hopefully, this is not showing up in the background. Justin, we are here to talk about uh, basically off-season coaching, off-season practices for, for athletes, for triathletes specifically. Um, I should welcome you to the podcast, I guess. So welcome to Swim Out of the Box first. Thank uh, you. <laughs> I'm terrible at this, by the way, just so you know. Um, <laughs> this is all selfish. This is all like, oh, I want to talk to people about things that I like to talk about. So I'm going to talk to those people. It's not like because I have a desire to be a podcast host, not because I think I would be good at being a podcast host. Eh, it's none of that. Um, give us a rundown of sort of your background and what you're doing now and all those great things. Okay. So my background, I grew up in New Zealand, so hence the accent. Um, and I, it, most people understand me pretty well these days. It's faded a lot. It's not quite as, as uh, pronounced as it used to be. But I've been coaching now about 25 years, 20, nearly 26 years. Um, but I started out primarily thinking I was going to become a swim coach. Um, and it wasn't very long into uh, my own coaching career that I suddenly wound up with a, a squad full of triathletes and, and wound up being more of a tri coach than I did a, a um, swim coach. And so for me, it was a fairly logical progression to go down the, the tri coaching pathway. One of the first athletes I worked with um, went on to be um, the junior world number two. And so for me, it sort of that catapulted me down the, the high performance pathway um, with Triathlon New Zealand. And so, which then led on to me winding up in the US working for the US Olympic Training Center or working at the US Olympic Training Center for USA Tri as um, the athlete development manager. So I looked after about 80% of the elite athletes on the programs, um, managed their budgets, looked after a lot of their programming and stuff like that. Um, and then I left them in 2010 to pursue basically my own my own coaching stuff. And, and that was primarily driven by the fact that I wanted to coach more and, and do less admin. Um, so for me, that's pretty much what I've been doing ever since is just coaching um, primarily with my uh, lead athletes here in Colorado Springs and then my age group is spread out around the country. Um, and then I've just started recently um, working um, through a company here in Colorado Springs who have a facility at Pikes Peak Athletic, which is one of the um, a really good swim, has a very good swim program. Um, and so I'm now running their uh, tri program out of their facility uh, which is is kind of exciting. We have a an elite an elite program that's just started up. We also have an age group program and a junior program. So, um, just a matter of sort of building things from the ground up now because there was nothing there to begin with. And so, I'm kind of excited with the uh, the future as far as that goes. Yeah, that's a daunting task to start something from nothing. Uh, but there's there's like freedom in that, right? You don't have any legacies or expectations there, there is i mean it's, it is the the, the fear is, is certainly coupled with excitement i mean it's it's that i mean i've spent so much of my time over the years mentoring coaches and, and educating um coaches coming through who have essentially done what i'm doing now um and so it seems sort of funny to uh to go back and, and sort of practice what you preach um for the <laughs> yeah. longest period of time but it's it's good. I mean, it's it's a nice it's a nice sort of uh, starting point, and um, I'm I'm very excited about the the new elite athletes that I've got um, on the program. And uh, no, overall, it's 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 a it's a exciting prospect. Very cool. That's awesome. Uh, so we started. We know each other because we started working with the same client. Um, you were her tri coach remotely. Um, I was her swim coach locally, and every once in a while, you got to come and sit in on her swim lessons, and it's it's rare. I think it's rare when you have a swim coach and a tri coach 
that can see eye to eye or at least respect each other's abilities and go, I'm going to let them do what they do best and I'm going to stay out of it. That's yeah. often not the case. So well, I'm very comfortable with you. And it's kind of interesting you say that too because I, I see that national uh, on a fairly regular basis. Um, and I think it, the, the, where that stems from is – more the the process by which we coach athletes. So an athlete who coaches primarily age group athletes is expected to be a jack of all trades. And so a triathlete coach who coaches age groupers will tend to do all things, or at least believe that they can do all things. Right. However, however flawed that model may be. Um, but with an age grouper, it's generally not that difficult because I mean, you're not, everything you do tends to make them faster. Mm -hmm. um, my background is primarily in working with elite athletes and, and performance athletes. And so in my role, um, there's a much greater sort of job facilitating the, the services of others. So, um, I mean, it's the, it's the old model of, of athlete-focused, coach-driven, um, and then we basically, between the athlete and the coach, facilitate the services that go on around that. I think... Um, swim coaches for to a to an elite level tri coach is is exactly that. It's a it's a service provider, and we understand that each service provider brings stuff to the to the table that's that's far greater than what we can provide in ourselves. And so it, it really works out well um, to be able to to um, work with coaches directly. And you're always going to learn something from uh, from other coaches as well, and particularly um, individual specialists. And I think in New Zealand too, that was part of the model too. Was our country is so yeah. small as as a country, it's only four million, four and a half million people, that we have a, a lot of overlap between the different sports. And so for us, I mean, you'll you'll get tri coaches working with netball coaches and rugby coaches and stuff. Just and it, it's not necessarily on on things that are directly related to the sport, like physiology or running mechanics or anything like that. It, often it's just how to deal with athletes, and and so you get used to working with others around you. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, so yeah, it's just always been a nice relationship to have with you, honestly. Um, mm. So. Most people in North America should be on their off-season right now. They might be training for marathons, things like that. Um, most people probably started their off-season a month and a half ago, maybe two months ago. Mm -hmm. And I always see like these posts on Instagram by what I would call amateur swim coaches, people mm -hmm. that aren't doing it for a living per se, uh, that say, oh, it's the off-season. It's time to work on your swimming, right? But it's very surface level. There's no, there's no like what to focus on swimming wise or what to focus on whatever. Uh, any thoughts or approaches that you like to see from your clients in the off season when it comes specifically to swimming or maybe even running and cycling too? Who knows? For sure. And, I, and it's, it's funny. You can almost guarantee like you hit October of each year and it's like, okay, cue the marketing marketing posts. You know? <laughs> yeah. And it's it's nonstop. And, and you, you get the old story. It's like, hey, we have a limited number of spots still available, which is everybody knows is BS. I mean, because at the end of the day, <laughs> they have as many spots as they can fill with, with new clients. But um, most of the time you, you see a lot of that coming out of the triathlon coaches. And that's, I mean, I can totally understand that. I mean, you have to make a living and you have to do that side of it. But um, just from someone that's inside the profession, it does it does make you laugh at this time of year when you start to see those sorts of things popping up. But yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting. When I started coaching um, our, our tri seasons, I mean, most of the work I did was with short course um, performance athletes. And so our, our tri season traditionally started April and used to go until like late September, early October. Nowadays, our, our season starts, I, I've got athletes who are looking at racing 
early January, early February, um, and all the way through to late November. Um, and so from that standpoint, the the, the, the idea of an off-season has, has changed quite dramatically um, over, over the years. And I think that's kind of unfortunate in the fact that I really believe there's a there's a cyclic nature to the, the way we train athletes, mm-hmm. um, particularly on a yearly basis. And I see a lot of flaws in the idea of moving athletes, particularly performance athletes, to to warmer climates where they can train all year round because you don't see that. So, yes, while they can train all year round, they also wind up being average all year round um, as opposed to being really good when they need to be and really sort of off and and relaxed and eating their Christmas cookies and muffins (laughs) when they really need to. And so that, that... Nature and also too the nature of going from cold to warm and then back to cold again I think is important for the for the body as well. But mm-hmm. um, as far as the training goes, I mean for most of my athletes, it depends on the level of performance. Like I think one of the issues most triathlon coaches run into is a lot of their um, age group clients, particularly the the lower level age group clients, or the, not so much lower level, but the ones who are not quite so performance focused will tend to drop off programs in October or, or November after their last race, and then they'll pick it up again about February. And so you, you see a lot of coaches who will who will have problems with like three-month drop-offs in their athletes, and so they'll lose half their squad or a quarter of their squad, and so that becomes quite difficult for them in the off-season, which probably drives some of the marketing side of it. Um, yeah. But with that said... Um, most athletes, most coaches who are working with performance-based age groupers or performance-based elites um, will tend to not have um, them drop off at any point in time. And our off-seasons wind up being very short. Like So for an, an a normal performance-based athlete, we'll see them drop. Um, I usually take their last race and then give them two weeks of unstructured training where they can basically do what they want or nothing if they want. Um, and then from and I usually give them a, put the parameters on them and say look don't exceed this many hours of training per week and don't do anything above threshold um, so they can have some downtime um, not enough to go completely stir crazy but enough to, to sort of help them refresh mm-hmm. and then after that we start to move into some some sort of um, lightly structured training for about another week to two weeks and then we'll build out of that and start building up for the rest of the, for the next part of the season so for most of the athletes that generally means that November tends to be down quite down and we're starting to to, to build up in, in December but it's still relatively unstructured with Christmas and, and holidays it tends for most athletes it tends to be quite quite disjointed um, but yeah I mean I need them to have a basic level of fitness come January 1st so that when we start hit January 1st we're ready to go and start to build up and, and that keeps us on track for our targets and a lot of that is driven by how early in the season they're racing is um, or okay. if they're racing mid-season how long the races are so one of the things we see most commonly is particularly with, from a from an athlete signing up and, and athletes beginning to start training is most of your long course athletes will tend to start to sign up in October, November, which is why we start to see all those posts and things about right. people wanting, because they, they've signed up for an Ironman that might be mid-year, or and so they realize, okay, it's going to take me probably eight, six to nine months to get ready for this, and so they, they want to start early and they want to get going. Whereas your short course athletes tend not to see it from that perspective, and so you tend to get most of your short course athletes sign up generally between February and March. That sounds about right. Yeah. (laughs) So if someone is planning on their first race, whatever race that is, probably not an Ironman, we won't say that, but their first race of the year is, you know. You'd be surprised when you decide Ironman's going to be the first one. It's like, (laughs) it's it's a real head scratcher. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So it always has been. Uh, Someone's first race, whether it be uh, 
you know, Olympic distance or a half marathon, half marathon, a half uh, Ironman, um, mm-hmm. maybe in May. At what point do you want to see them have a good aerobic base sort of situated by? Like, is that the early January? Yeah, so- the the irony with with longer races is you tend to wind up having to do less high intensity stuff, and so um, you can you can allow them to reach their peak base and peak conditioning, so for strength endurance and stuff, a, a lot later, a lot closer to the race. Um, but it takes you longer to get to that point. So you're building up volumes, and for us, I mean, you never want to exceed or increase the training volume by about more than ten percent per week. Um, and you want to have a down week or a, or a lower week about every third to fourth week. Um, and the off season, I'll go usually three three weeks build and then one week adaptation and then three weeks build and then one week adaptation. Um, okay. And yep. Oh, I was I was saying okay, yeah. you're a, there's a and, little and delay. So, yeah, and so we'll we'll tend to do that on and normally a, a, a down week will be about a thirty percent drop in volume. And then depending on the athlete themselves, if it's a new athlete who hasn't been in training for a long time and doesn't have a huge history behind them, we'll tend to drop back to a, about where the second week was on the previous block. So you might go 10, 11, 12, and then you might go down hours of training, and then you might go down to say seven or eight. But then the following week, you might start 11, 12, 13. And so whereas an athlete who's come from a, a fairly solid background, who's looking for a fast, relatively fast build, who has trained maybe 16 or 18 hours per week previously, what we may wind up doing is go 11, 12, 13, drop down to say eight hours for that down week, and then we'll go 13, 14, 15. So it's a much quicker build um, cycle okay. with an athlete who has a history. Uh, but certainly, I mean, for me, I want the athletes to have really good strength and strength endurance behind them and a really good base in place by about six weeks out or about we, we're hitting peak weeks about six weeks out from their major race. Okay. So I'm trying to like think about the people that are listening and think about my clients and think about, you know, what's sort of uh, the conventional wisdom right everyone mm-hmm. always says oh it's off season time do more swimming do less running uh do more drills don't worry too much about endurance right is that the conventional wisdom that you often hear um that that tends to be i want to avoid the weather um wisdom and it's <laughs> like and, and and i can totally understand that because i, yep. I mean our weather in Colorado is is pretty good, and you can train most most of the way through the year. Yes, you have to wear warmer clothes, but for the most part, the weather's dry. We don't get huge amounts of snow, and the snow that we do get clears relatively quickly. Um, and in that regard, it's not that in, it's sort of different from from out where you guys are um, on yeah. the east coast. But certainly for for me, I think yeah, there's there's a lot of looking at where where limitations were last year in the previous in the in the season and saying okay what did what needed to be fixed that we couldn't fix while we were training what we while we were racing um and and putting time into that and a lot of the off season i find tends to be spent making sure that anything that caught was injured or was that had potential to be constantly monitored um that that's what we're trying to fix so if, if a swimmer had a sore shoulder then we're, we're trying to fix the shoulder, um, allow it to re- rehab properly, and then trying to change form um, in all, to, to try and prevent that issue from reoccurring in, in the future. Same sort of thing with the running. We're looking at mechanics, looking at things that might have caused an injury or things that could cause an injury going forward with as volumes increase 
and making sure that those things don't don't play a part. Now, if you've got an athlete that who's not going through that cycle where they're not they haven't been injured and they're, they're relatively balanced, and, and so at that point we're starting to look for um, to to start that build up. Um, but when we do start the build up, it's always feel I wouldn't say generic because generic is the wrong word for it. It's more diverse in the in the type of training we're doing. So you're doing a lot of stuff that. Um, has wide ranges of, of intensities and wide ranges of variety and and, and, mm-hmm. and it becomes as you get closer to your races much more specialized so in the off season I mean most of it, the races that an athlete who does 70.3 and Ironman spends most of their time on a time trial bike so the one thing I won't let them do in the off season is ride a time trial bike and so I don't mind if they ride a gravel bike or they ride a mountain bike or they ride their road bike um, and as long as they're getting the variety and they're trying something different because I find that if you mix it up and you allow them to do different things in the off season, you tend to find that the athletes will wind up with a better, a more sort of a more balanced muscular structure. And also yeah. they, they tend to be better, more, just more balanced in general. And also off season, if you're, if you're off a time trial bike and you're riding um, different types of bikes, then that tends to strengthen the upper body more as well. And so the athletes are, are just better, more balanced when they go into the season, which also then lowers the injury profile for athletes in the, in the actual season itself. Um, whereas, yeah, if you ride time trial bikes all year long, then you find that athletes tend to be very one-dimensional. Um, and so muscle groups tend to be um, strong front to back, but weak side to side. Upper bodies tend to be weaker. And so... And that, that eventually causes injuries. So it's, it's the old story. I mean, you generally don't get major injuries in your prime moving muscles. It's generally the stabilizers. And right. most of the time, those aren't getting injured because the the work that we're doing in the main part of the season is very sort of focused on the prime movers and they get strong and the, the, um, the supporting muscles get weaker. And so that tends to cause, cause issues. And I find the off season a really good time to create balance in those other muscle groups. Yeah. That makes complete sense. And I really liked the idea of not being concerned about here's a blanket statement about what to do in the off season. It's more about someone needs to identify what they couldn't fix during the season or mm-hmm. what their weaknesses are so they can bring those up to, to more of a homostasis with, without the weakness. And can you yeah, develop and, those and balances? That- that's probably a good way to look at it. I think for me, it's, it's because most athletes during the season will race usually at least once a month um, in a lot of cases, or even once every six weeks, which means you're lurching. If you're an athlete who's injured or on the verge of injury, you're constantly lurching from one race to the next, trying to keep them injury free rather than trying to drive them forward. It's so much easier once you get to the off season, suddenly you've got this 12 week or 13 week or 14 week block well, there's just no racing. And so it's like you yeah. can you can do almost anything in that time period and it gives the body time to allow it to recover and adapt and, and it's just it's so much so much easier to fix the things at that point in time. And I'm always concerned by athletes that either don't take enough time off in the off season because I mean, well you're not what you're doing is not really taking time off. You're allowing your body to fix other things as opposed to fixing or causing an adaptation. Because people forget that when the body's adapting to training load, it's not it's it's affecting your immune systems. It's affecting your ability to fix injuries. It's it gets in the way of other things. If you can take that loading off, then suddenly all those other things come come to the fore and, and get fixed pretty quickly. And so it just makes sense to to look at it from a much more holistic standpoint. Yeah, absolutely. Um, makes me think about speed work. By the mm-hmm. way, this whole idea because it can be very difficult 
for coaches and athletes to find opportunity to focus on speed while within the season uh, because they're so focused on making sure that they can make the distance. Uh, these are obviously for more uh, beginner or newer athletes. Um, but even then, I find that a lot of triathletes who haven't had great coaching are great at surviving. They're not very <laughs> good at pushing. They're not very good at, at, at getting past that plateau. And yep. So I think maybe a, a smart approach would be, I'll say, four to six weeks of just technique work from a swimming perspective, uh, technique work so that we can make sure the movements that you need to make are being reinforced. But then giving technique work with speed work, not too concerned about endurance, really, mm -hmm. but how do we develop speed and then worry about endurance? And it, is, it gets complicated because we can't develop speed without aerobic capacity either. So, Yeah, and this, I mean, and that's the thing. It's like, I mean, it's, it, is a, it is difficult. I mean, if it, if it wasn't, then our jobs would be boring. Um, right. Or a, or, a, or a computer could do them. Um, but what's, more, what's interesting when you start to look at it from that perspective is if you can start to periodize the sports differently. So when we look at triathlon, I mean, yes, you've got swim, bike and run, but all things don't have to be done at the same point in time. So for swimming, because it's essentially non-weight bearing and you're in an environment where you're not getting eccentric loading, um, the risk for injury um, from an impact thing, impact is relatively low. Also, the response from a lactate standpoint compared to something like running is tends to be a little bit more muted in most most athletes, particularly triathletes, yeah. um, which don't have particularly well-developed anaerobic systems anyway, just because of the nature of how they train. Uh, but certainly for most of those athletes, yeah, doing some speed in the early season um, after they've got some, some conditioning behind them makes a lot of sense um, because it's amazing how how biomechanical improvements tend to come through speed um, right. and so you tend to find that um, if you can if you can get that side of it it makes a big difference and it's not that we would do running and cycling speed at that point in the season I mean I see a lot of people trying to push up their FTPs over on the bike over the winter and it's just I mean I think it's it's a that in itself can be a recipe for failure unless you deliberately have an early season race that you're preparing for I think doing too much speed too early on the bike or the run can be an issue um, whereas the swim tends not to be and I think the swim also, um, we tend to periodize the run and the cycle differently um, than we do a swim. So swim, you can get away with having all zones on a fairly weekly basis almost. Um, whereas if you're doing all the zones on cycle and run, athletes become burnt out pretty, pretty right. quickly. Um, and so for us... Um, the swim is is really quite a quite foundational, almost more foundational for particularly with short course athletes, more foundational than the other disciplines, because it provides you with the ability to do a lot of cardiovascular work in all zones, without beating the body up dramatically, and therefore it carries over really well to the cycle and, and run, um, and has a huge huge benefit. And I think that to a certain degree, that's part of the reason why we've seen the rise of, of American women's triathlon and the fact that most of our girls um, at an elite level have come from swimming backgrounds or relatively strong swimming backgrounds. Most of them have some run behind them, but most of them are coming from, from swimming backgrounds and picking up the run based on the fact that they have huge aerobic engines and, and really know how to, to, to drive it. Um, but certainly as far as periodize, periodizing things, I think certainly um, some speed in the swim early in the season is, is never a bad thing. And since you're not getting it from the bike and the run, it does have the benefit of keeping your anaerobic system active. Oh, that's interesting. And I, I would like to point out that 
just because you're swimming doesn't mean you're hitting all the zones. You have to actually no, make no, sure you not. don't go at one speed and you build it into your workouts. If you don't have a coach, you need to make sure you build in different speeds. It's sure, not a correct. Well, and it's and it's interesting when you talk to like, and certainly we have a lot of the Kenyan runners based here in Colorado Springs, um, or Kenyan Ethiopian runners who come out here and train on a regular basis for altitude. Um, and it's interesting because one of their comments um, was that the the biggest problem they find with Americans is the fact that they do their fast stuff too slow and their slow stuff too fast. Um, and so it's not it's not unusual to go past a, a runner who can run a two o six or two o five marathon who's out there running 10.30 per mile um, in full in full sweats. Um, and I think to a certain degree in the, in the pool, I think we, we see a lot of athletes sort of get into a, a one-speed-fits-all one um, scenario, which I think if you can learn to handle going slow some days and fast other days, it makes a huge difference. Um, yeah. But certainly, yes, the, um, you're right. I mean, there's, there's a big difference when you when you start talking zones, even between zones on the swim, zones on the bike, and zones on the run. Um, well, from a cardiovascular system, and the body treats them relatively similar, um, certainly threshold on the swim is often 20 beats lower on the, on the swim than it is on, mm-hmm. the, on the run and about 10 beats lower than it is on the bike. Um, just for for different different reasons, but certainly there is some some quite quite staggering differences. Well, thank you for giving me the excuse that I can go run my my ten thirty <laughs> mile pace now. I feel good about that. It's, just... it's, it's my slow condi- it's my slow conditioning day. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Every day runs going to be my slow conditioning day, <laughs> at least for the next four weeks. How about that? Or maybe what are we in? Maybe the next eight eight weeks. Well, right? and, and I can throw all my sweats on. One of the things people always forget about the fact that, like, they, they they look at they look at going slow as if it's a wasted session because they're not getting as much out of it as they would have if they pushed it faster. What they often people fail to realize is a lot of the the bone, ligament, and tendon strength that comes from um, that the body needs in order to do speed comes from the slow stuff that we do, allowing the body to to adapt. Um, I mean, if you do fast stuff all the time. The general general rule of thumb is that if you if you do a harder session, it takes longer to recover, and you don't start to adapt until you've recovered. So if you're then doing hard sessions all the time, you're always recovering, but you're never adapting, and, and it's the adaptation process that we're really looking for. Um, certainly, the same sort of thing. Like if you if you have a slower session you recover faster and so you start to adapt. So those slower sessions have huge benefits as far as allowing the bones, ligaments and tendons to get stronger so they can then handle the load that will come later on from speed. Um, and I think people forget that and they start with speed too early, then the, the bones, ligaments and tendons can't handle it and then they wind up getting injured. And we see the same thing with, with swimmers coming in to try from a pure swim background. They have this massive engine and they can probably run 17 minutes for a 5K but the body can only handle a 19-minute 5K, and so they wind up right. injured very quickly. Um, and so yeah, it, it becomes a, a self-defeating sort of s- cycle of, of destruction. Yeah, I don't think it's that people forget it. I don't think people know it. I don't think I knew that that slower workload or lighter workload just helped to, to build up that strength in your mm-hmm. ligaments and tendons, which thank you for telling me that. I didn't know that. So hopefully people are connecting with that and, and understand how important it is to have the variety. Um, it's just, uh, I, I come from a swimming background. So in swimming, my mindset is always, I got to go. <laughs> so it's been very mm-hmm. difficult and challenging for me to coach athletes that, uh, 
are more concerned about finishing their race, right? And I always try to talk to the, like maybe the by the first the end of their first year of training, the end of their maybe their second year of training, you've got to stop breaking that mindset. You know you can finish the race. It's time to push now, right? Mm-hmm. So I think um, trying to to get people to understand the difference of survival training versus hard work is a really tricky thing. But I think if they understand why, it makes a huge difference. Not just to make yourself faster, but maybe it's going to prevent injury as well. And mm-hmm. maybe you can overcome a lot of the injuries by training properly. So that's a really nice uh, sort of slight tangent, but right on point, really. So uh, that's I, good. I, I tend to tangent all the time. So you just get used to it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't talk without it. So um, I think also kind of going uh, back a little bit, the idea of just going out and doing a fast run because it made you feel like, oh, I put in the work. I think mm-hmm. that's a general fitness idea. If I was just someone trying to stay in shape, I'm going to try to maximize the amount of time or optimize, I should say, the amount of time I work out. Well, I only have 30 minutes to do this run. I better push really hard on this run. But if you're an athlete trying to actually train for something specifically like, I don't know, Olympic distance triathlon, you've got to do a little bit more thinking than that. You can't Mm -hmm. just go, I'm in this to look good or I'm in this, you know, because I need to work out. That might work for your first year, but after that, you need to really start considering what it is you're doing and how do you train specifically for it. So I think that was really, really insightful. Um, Let's see. You do a lot of online coaching, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Are you looking for new clients? Do you want to give a shout out for yourself for new clients? By all means. I mean, I'm I'm, like I said, it's it's October, November, December. Everyone's got their they got their posts out. But um, (laughs) certainly, uh, no. I I, I'm always I've always um, always looking for new clients. And every now and again, you do get clients roll over. I generally run a relatively full squad most of the time. Um, But you normally the normal rule of thumb is you have about 15 to 20 percent of your athletes will roll over on on a yearly basis. And so. Um, for me, I usually have about four or five spots that will will tend to fill up. Um, it's usually about this time of year in preparation for the following year. And and I mean, each for me, it's it's interesting. I I, I find like I've got some ultra distance runners this year. Um, I have some long distance triathletes. I have some short distance triathletes. And I have some pro triathletes. Um, and I like the variety. Um, so I don't necessarily like to necessarily specialize in a particular area. Once upon a time, I used to specialize quite a lot. Um, but as I've got older and my skill sets got bigger, I find that there's more variety, more variety makes things more exciting for me and more interesting. Yeah. And so it's sort of, you, you, you tend to do some dabbling with in some, uh, diff- different types of racing. So I, I train a couple of pentathletes as well. Um, nice. and while I don't, while I don't coach the fencing or the shooting components or the horse <laughs> riding for that matter, um, it is interesting to, to work with the, with the short, short distance nature of their running and, and focusing on the swim components. Um, and also overseeing the actual structure of how their programs go together. I mean, trying to, you think it's hard trying to fit three sports into a, into a program, try fitting yeah. five sports into a program. Um, and, and very diverse sports too. They're not, it's not like one sport, um, the skills for one sport carries over really, really well to the other one. And I'm sure there's, there's not too much correlation between shooting and riding a horse. Um, likewise, f- fencing and shooting tend to be, or fencing and swimming tend to be like polar opposites. So um, it is a, it is 
kind of interesting to work with those athletes. But certainly for me, um, I'm, I'm always looking um, to, for athletes just primarily to replace the ones that roll over on a yearly basis or, or get pregnant or have family things that they want to do. And right. I mean, it's, it's always a, a slowly evolving sort of uh, environment. But um, no, it's, I think it's going to be an exciting year. I'm, I'm looking forward to 2020. I think um, we're starting to see triathletes venture out beyond the traditional like long course or short course mm -hmm. racing we're seeing a lot more athletes doing exterra we're starting to see some gravel races turning up in in colorado now where they do swim gravel rides and then run um so cool. there's a lot of variety coming into the sport now we're also starting to see too the rise of aqua bike um yes. and aquathons and uh, and i think that's exciting too because i think triathlon um in its by itself can be a little bit limiting as far as as to who can do it because not everyone wants to be able to run or, or cannot can't can't run and by the time we reach middle age unfortunately like i am at the moment um you certainly <laughs> at the start, moment are you going to get younger <laughs> i'm definitely not getting younger okay. um no, but you start to you start to look at it and you think oh okay well if i was if i was injured or i didn't have the ability to run i'd still want to train and i'd still want to compete um, because that never goes away and so the the aqua bike has really been a, a huge plus for the for the sport and we've seen that grow quite dramatically in the last probably two or three years Okay, so how do people uh, reach out to you or find you if they're interested in contacting you about your coaching stuff? Um, I'm I'm sure if you uh, that I'm I'm usually pretty pretty easy to track down if you just punch my name into a an, into a search engine. Trelay, there's not that many Justin Trelays in the country, and uh, so okay. I'm, I'm relative I'm relatively easy to track down in that regard. Um, most of my clientele for the for the longest time has been word of mouth, so I haven't done a huge amount of, of promotional or marketing work. I've generally um, had relatively full squads, and so I haven't needed to sort of um, do a lot of of promotional work. But certainly, I'm I'm not difficult to, to track down if you just remember to uh to, to put my last name into a search engine i'm, I'm pretty easy to find and that's t-r-o-l-l-e right correct yep it's uh pretty easy pr pronounced <laughs> trelay um it's got a it's got an accent over the e like bole and nestle um as which is how how i usually pronounce it to people but um the the irony is is the fact that uh it still gets butchered on a daily basis so it's like you sort of you, you grow up getting used to being called every every sort of version of it and so uh, i mean i remember going through swimming sports where you had to listen to about five or six different variations on it in order to know when your call-up was so yeah. Yeah. Um, but that was that was just the nature of it yeah i, I grew up the same way so i understand um I imagine yeah <laughs> all right so Let's let's go ahead and and I think we gave a lot of good information. So let's say goodbye now, and then what Sounds we could do is another conversation very similar to this in a couple of months and see where people are with their training and see if we can make connections for people. Yeah, I think it's a, I think talking about pre preseason training and looking at uh, how people sort of transition from that off season into the into the main part of the season, which is not always the easiest thing to do, um, would would be a great discussion. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll we'll do this again. Maybe what? What do you think? Four to six weeks. Yeah, I mean, sometime sometime in the early in the new year. So uh, probably looking somewhere around late late January would be great. Cool. All right, we'll do that. All right. Uh, thanks again for your time. Uh, if anyone wants to find Justin, you can Google his name. <laughs> it's pretty straightforward. 
my 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 email is just justin at v hyphen tri dot com as well. So there you go. emailing emailing me works just just dandy as well. But uh, I'm so I'm not hard to find. Just justin at v hyphen tri dot com. All right, and people will email you. We get emails from people all the time. So uh, they, they are more than welcome to. And I'm I'm always a a big proponent of of trying to help people whenever I can. I mean, I, I didn't I didn't get into the the to the sport of uh, or into coaching to not help people. I mean, it's right. it's sort of what it's sort of what we do. Exactly. All right. Great. All right. Well, we will talk again in a couple in a couple weeks in about six weeks. Thank you again. And if anyone needs to find anything about Swimbox, obviously, as we always say, Google Swimbox, you'll find us. All right. Fantastic. All right. Thanks, Thanks a lot, Justin.